Hey everyone, welcome to episode 5 of Uncomfortable, the podcast. My name is Debbie Roach. I'm excited to have another comfortable conversation around an uncomfortable topic. This might be episode number five, but it's actually the first official episode of Uncomfortable. Prior to this, we were Deb Talks, but recently rebranded and relaunched with a brand new look and feel. And I really hope you like it. In this week's episode, we talk money and relationships with financial advisor Tracy Themes. Prior to co-founding Sophia Financial Group, Raymond James, in 2009, Tracy worked as a financial consultant with Smith Barney, a US brokerage firm, and after returning to Canada, was an advisor with a large bank-owned investment firm. Tracy has an ME in counselling psychology. She's a certified financial planner and a fellow of the Canadian Securities Institute. Tracy was awarded the International Alliance of Women Global 100 Award for her work in empowering women through education. Her book, The Financially Empowered Woman, won the Bronze Prize for the Living Now Awards for Finance and Economics and the Axiom Gold Medal in the category of Personal Finance. She received the UBC Education Alumni 100 Award for her community leadership in promoting financial literacy and was recently nominated for the 2017 YWCA Women of Distinction Award for Business and the Professions. Now, despite her numerous awards and achievements, the one thing I love about Tracy is her no bullshit straight up attitude. Tracy says it like it is. So I knew that she'd be the perfect person to talk us through having that awkward conversation around money with our loved ones. I hope that you really enjoy our conversation and get a lot out of it, but please note that we do use some adult language, so you might want to pop your headphones on. Welcome everybody to episode five of the Uncomfortable Podcast. I'm here with Tracy Themes. Hi. Tracy, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. It's awesome to have you. You've been on my mind for a long time to get you on this podcast, so I'm really happy that it's finally happening. Good, I am too. Awesome, (laughs) awesome. So I just want to go straight in to talk a little bit about your story. I have read your book. I know a little bit about you and I know you personally too. I'm really, um, I love the fact that you started out as a child psychologist. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit how of how you then ended up in finance? Well, I was doing my doctoral work um, while I was um, at, at UBC. And while I was doing that, I was working in the downtown east side as an infant development consultant. And in my last year there, three of the babies on my caseload died. And I, that catapulted me into a spiritual crisis because I felt that two out of the three were because of economic reasons. And I didn't, I just couldn't reconcile the fact that seven blocks away kids were getting food and they had nice carriages and they were being looked after and then here where i was there were there were kids that were actually 
like one of one of the children died from suffocating from rolling over on a dirty carpet and i was like for the price of a vacuum a child's life mm-hmm. could be spared so i i began a process of self-reflection essentially and i was concerned that i would do my phd and i'd be doctor themes but at the end of the day i would not really be having an effect or impact on the things that I cared about, which is, you know, looking after families and mm-hmm. making sure that um, people had optimal lives. I have always wanted to be of service. So after a year of soul searching, um, I decided that the question that lived in me the strongest is why are some people rich and some people poor? Mm-hmm. And that set me on my course. Um, I worked in a business for 10 years, an international play comp- company, which amalgamated my child development background um, with business. And then to the point where I had my company and sold it. And then I became interested in higher level finance that's essentially what I did when I was in the United States was I worked for what was then Smith Barney and mm-hmm. now Morgan Stanley. And that was the final sort of big shift that I made career-wise, learning about money and being there with most of the rich people and figuring out how did they get rich and how do they keep wealth and how do we build philanthropists and how are we ever going to get money into the downtown east side if mm-hmm. we don't join up the rich and the poor. Yeah. So I'm still doing that today. Awesome. Those questions still get me up. Perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's awesome. You've now transitioned into Sophia yes. Finance. So that's where you're at now. Yes. Um, now, this particular episode, we're focusing on money and mm-hmm. relationships. Yes. And looking back at your research, based on your research and your experience with, you know, working with women from downtown Eastside or even women who are, you know, in the West End in beautiful big houses, how do women handle finances differently from men? That is a complex question. So at Smith Barney, I was trained to work with high net worth women. And at that point, it was estimated that women were going to control 70% of um, basically all owned assets in the United States and Canada by 2019. So the big companies who were forecasting um, what the greatest needs would be Mm -hmm. thought that educating women for this onslaught of money, which was basically going to be inherited money, was essential. So that's how we started um, approaching things. But in the 25 years that I've been working in this field since, I realized it's a lot more complicated than just educational inexperience. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more complicated than just knowing what an RSP is and what an asset allocation strategy. And that socioculturally, women and men are raised with different uh, relationships, were raised with different expectations around money. And that's what I've been pulling apart for the last while. Wow. Now, just to go back, because I was actually quite intrigued um, by that research that by 2019, two thirds of all assets would be held by Mm -hmm. women. And it was mostly because of their inheritance. Have you ever gone back to that research to see, you know, what the outcome was like 2019 is, is here? What happened? How did those women deal with that inheritance? Did they invest it? What did they do? What? Well, Basically, what the tentative, and I would not by any means say this is that there is strong empirical evidence, but my experience is that a lot of the women passed over the authority and responsibility 
to other people in their life. Mm. So we thought they were going to take this money because there was such compelling research that we were the socially responsible investors, that we were the philanthropists, but it turns out not to be true. In reality, a lot of women simply um, deferred their decision-making or referred it on to other people, the majority. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I was yeah fascinated by that in your book, so I was curious to know what happened. Now, um, let's talk about the money dynamic in a relationship. Often the power goes to the highest earner, whether mm-hmm. that's you generally still the male these days. Um, could be female. What can the other person in the relationship do to kind of shift that dynamic? Because no one wants that imbalance in the relationship. I'm not sure that I would say that people don't want that imbalance in the relationship. I think that putting the responsibility for making financial decisions on somebody else is very tempting. Um, And there's definitely... There's definitely some very um, good benefits for doing that. It's stressful. Money is uh, the source of a lot of anxiety and tension for people. So if you can find somebody who will take that anxiety and tension away from you, and they're willing to shoulder it, and perhaps they've been been trained to do it, um, I think that's that it's always going to be tempting. So Mm. originally, I just thought if we gave everybody equal access to education, credible, compelling, rational, interesting, extraordinarily practical education, that that would help to equalize things. But in reality, it's the emotional components Mm. that are stressful. It's not to, it's, we say that it has to do with what we know and don't know, but I think a lot of it is the, emotional and um, the psychological aspects of money that that cause us strain. So how do we create balance? Well, the first is that we have to identify what we feel about it and our Mm -hmm. discomfort. And then the best way, of course, is dialogue. The trick is that most of us haven't been given any information or um, we 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 aren't given role models for what that dialogue would look like. It's not something we heard at the kitchen table. It's not something our sister has taught us. It's not something we've been practicing since grade nine. It's a new form of dialogue. And because money has come to mean how we are valued in society, it's a lot touchier than everybody. We know that we're uncomfortable, but we are justifiably uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because money is no longer just stuff that buys stuff. Money is our value in this world. And more and more, I am seeing that the currency of importance and status in our culture is attributed to how much money somebody has. We attribute incredibly positive qualities to people who are wealthy, even if they're pigs. Mm -hmm. We think they know more than us. So it's become a lot more dynamic, a lot more stressful. Wow. Like to go back to um, education, Do you have any, I don't know, idea or any suggestions of what could be done at the early stage, you know, whether it's high school or even elementary school to kind of, you know, educate young women about, you know, money and and power? So the the first thing that I tell parents who come to me and say, how do I raise financially literate children? So, and this is a gender neutral comment is to model the management of it. Mm. Instead of just having closed door, whispered, tense conversations with the with your co-parent, 
that you actually sit at the kitchen table on the last Wednesday of the month and you pull up your Excel spreadsheet or your mint.com mm-hmm. or whatever methodology you're using yeah. to track and you talk about cash flow and you talk about saving up. Mm-hmm. And just while the kids are around, you model that. So they see it as part of normal, responsible, mm-hmm. everyday behavior and that it's not like, honey, we need to talk. It's yeah. just, it's normalized. So that's the first thing. The second is to be very, we have to become much more awake and aware to how we're talking about money mm-hmm. as well not just what we're showing but how we're talking so what i'm seeing more and more is that parents are modeling debt mm-hmm. they're modeling credit card use they're not saving up for things themselves so they're overwhelmed and if you're if 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 my money situation is unmanageable, I'm going to be behaving in ways that will be replicated by my children that will create unmanageability for them. Hmm. Then the third piece is becoming very aware of our gender um, expectations Mm -hmm. of uh, girls and boys. And to me, that starts right with talking about date behavior. I talked to my daughter right from the beginning. It is not your partner, girl or boy. It's mm-hmm. not their responsible to pick up the tap. Mm-hmm. You must always be prepared to share or to have that discussion. Um, and just because, um, especially if it's a boy picking up, I don't know when it's two boys, how they manage it. But you have to be willing to start those conversations when you're 14 and 15. Well, the way to do that is to have somebody model it. Yeah. And the way to do that is to have somebody say it's an expectation. It's not an expectation that somebody else is going to always be handling it. You have to learn how to handle it. And that's the modeling and that is the instruction that we need to be giving and providing. Mm -hmm. I love that, especially in the dating aspect. And that kind of brings me to my next question. Uh, One thing I do love about you is your kind of upfront, no bullshit comments. This is how it is. So if a young couple had to sit down in front of you, say they're engaged, about to get married or about to move in together, what advice would you give them? How straight up would you be? So the first thing that I always want to know is what their promises are to each other in a general sense. What is this relationship? Are we just sharing rent because we live in Vancouver and otherwise we couldn't afford to? And Mm -hmm. because of that, we've decided we're going to have sex together in a monogamous relationship. And that's the beginning and end of this relationship. Or is there a sacred element to it? Is there a spiritual covenant? Um, Is this just a temporary? Are we living together as a temporary stepping stone to something more committed? Or is this the end point? And what I'm saying is that right from the beginning, if you're not willing to have a conversation about the promises and the meaning of this relationship, money is going to be very difficult, even more prohibitive than it would be. Whereas if we start with, I've got your back, I want to be with you for the rest of my life, or I have your back and I'm moving back to Australia next February, so until February, we are in for a penny, in for a pound, and Mm -hmm. then it's over. Um, that's a different type of relationship. Money springing organically from meaning, organically from our value to each other, will be so much more smooth and so much more reflective and nurturing of the relationship than sprung from the outside in. Okay, so what questions would you recommend that couples kind of sit down and ask one another? Because I know that can be an incredibly uncomfortable conversation. I've had that experience myself and thankfully my partner was very open, but I know a lot aren't. 
So the first question to me is, would you be willing to have a conversation about what our promises are? Mm. And they're like, no. (laughs) Okay. The second question is, would you be willing to tell me why not? Mm. No. Okay. Done. Would you be willing to have a conversation with me about our relationship? Sure. When and where would be the best time to do that for you? Hmm. Saturday, um, after I do my workout, I'm really calm. Let's go for breakfast. Great. So first Mm -hmm. of all, the piece that people skip through is the willingness, is the buy-in from the other person to even have the conversation. Mm -hmm. What I see with a lot of the women... Um, that I coach and that who are my friends is they jump straight into this huge conversation mm-hmm. and they've been stealing themselves to have it for three weeks but they haven't given their partners any warning that this is coming down the pike yeah. so the first thing I do is try to equalize power and mm-hmm. equalize power is the willingness to do to have the conversation okay. another question and like this seems like the long way around but it is definitely to me the shorter way the second was So here we are having our conversation. Would you be willing to talk about how this conversation should unfold? And they may be rolling their eyes, but you'd be surprised. People feel heard, understood, and a lot safer if they're part of a construction Mm -hmm. of a rule, which is, um, yeah, I think we have this conversation and we limit it to an hour. Or um, as soon as one of us um, feels that it's we're in too deep that we give um, a word like um, cookie, yeah. which means we need a break. Um, we promise not to raise our voices. We promise to listen to the whole question. Mm-hmm. We, so we create a communication, even if it's three or four little um, rules of engagement, yeah. that this is how we are going to handle this conversation. And you know what? Maybe that'll be enough for that Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you'll be like, wow. This is really a really cool process, and everybody's really prime now. Yeah. And then it's, would you be willing, like I say, I think promises comes first, but if it's about money, would you be willing to have a conversation with me about money? Okay. Now, how early on in a relationship would you advise someone to sit down and have that conversation? Is there a good time? First date. First date? Sorry. Wow. <laughs> Nobody wants it. I argue about this all over the place. I just I just did a whole alumni group of 25 to 35 year olds and I thought they were all going to fall off their chair. The first the first time that you have a conversation about money should be the first time that you go out and spend money together, which is typically a date. Okay. Even if you meet the person on Tinder, um I can't think of a better <laughs> A, a, a better time with somebody you meet on Tinder than to say, would you be willing to talk about um, who's going to pay for this mm. coffee? Mm-hmm. Um, or w- is it okay with you? I asked you out. I, I, I swiped right. Um, and, and for me, that means that I pick up coffee. Is that okay with you? Oh, no, I'll pick it up. Well, could we just talk about this for a second? Yeah. Sure. So you establish the willingness to have that discussion with the first $2. Why mm-hmm. would you wait 20 years until there's yeah, $2 million on the table? Let's practice with 2 bucks. Yeah. And if they freak out on you about a coffee, I don't know why you're having sex with them. <laughs> because if you, if you don't think you can get through a coffee conversation... I'm telling you, unless you have sex differently than me, there's a lot more 
<laughs> difficult things ahead. So <laughs> let's practice with a $2 coffee. Well, coffees aren't two bucks anymore. Mine was no, five, know, 520 this right? morning. But that's where I would start it. And the, the advice and coaching that I got was to start talking about promises at the third date when mm-hmm. sex comes in. Mm-hmm. So I would start money on the first. Very simple. Commensurate with what the exchange is. Would you be willing to talk about who yeah. is going to pick up coffee? By the third date, would you be willing to have a conversation about what our promises are right now? Because mm-hmm. typically third to fifth date in this town anyways, sex is on the table for negotiation. Yeah. So I would rather have that. And I am shocked at how receptive men in particular are to that conversation on the third date wow very very receptive Mm -hmm. so and i speak from experience (laughs) it's simple the promises on a third date but they're promises nonetheless yeah so um it's a practice it's a practice communication structure yeah i feel like you should write a blog for tinder (laughs) yeah or perhaps they could add to the app you know an agreement (laughs) if you swipe and you set up a date then you agree at that point who's going to pay wouldn't that be awesome uh no because i think you would basically be again we think with with apps like tinder that we are being efficient but mm. all we're doing is starting a process that obliterates normal processes that then have to go back. And you can't skip steps to relationships. Yeah. People think, well, I've just had sex. Well, everybody's had sex on, on first on first dates or picking people up in yeah. bars. Um, I mean, that's I'm not that old that it didn't happen um, when I was in my uh, 20s. But humans still have basic emotional needs and mm-hmm. those needs for connection are created through the same steps. So at some point, you may jump into to step five, but you're going to have to go back and do step one, right. two, three, and four mm. at some point. Yeah. It is actually easier to do them in order. Yeah. <laughs> but there are situations where we skip around. Yeah, but we tend not to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's kind of fast forward from first date to common law. And this is something that has often, um, I've kind of tried to do a little bit of research in because I'm in a common law relationship. And I just find that there's no clear information out there on the laws around common law, if they're the same as marriage now. So if you're in a common law relationship, if you then had to separate, are the laws the same as a married couple? Would assets be divided if no agreement was in place? So it's very simple and the information is out there mm-hmm. and can be accessed very easily. I'm not a lawyer, mm-hmm. but let me give you the two second rundown, mm-hmm. which is that in British Columbia, at the two year mark, we become common law mm-hmm. or at the point that there's a shared child. Right. If it happens before. At the two year mark, we backdate our shared financial obligations to the first day we live together. Oh, wow. So you've got two years to figure out how to create agreements with each other. But recognizing that as the clock ticks and you decide Mm -hmm. you are going to be staying together past two years and that million-dollar home that you're both living in has just appreciated to Mm 1.5, unless you dump them the day before two years you have a responsibility to share 50% of the appreciation. Wow. So I think, again, 
understanding what the relationship is to start with and the role of our financial commitments at a very general level helps those conversations. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. It's why here at Sophia Financial Group, we do so many classes, love and the law, um, transitioning through divorce. Um, We do, oh, what we, we do, happy... Happy marriage, happy hearts or something. I don't know. And I do money, marriage, and mayhem. We do mm-hmm. a lot of educating about the financial obligations, responsibilities, duties of mm-hmm. our relationships, of which there are many. And just yeah. because you don't know them, the law doesn't excuse you from being obligated to them just because you don't know them. Yeah. So I think taking a course, um, going on law, uh, online to look Family Law Act, British mm-hmm. Columbia, Family Law Act, Ontario, take a look and see what the, it's pretty straightforward. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and the same with uh, divorce. So you've mentioned, I think in your book, that a lot of your clients are women who are going through divorces mm-hmm. and they're now trying to settle the finance part mm-hmm. of things. So what exactly, if someone had to be a homemaker, you know, whether it's the, the woman or, mm-hmm. you know, the man, whoever, uh, what are they entitled to if no agreement is in place? Is that, again, similar to common law? Yes. 50 50% of shared asset appreciation and shared mm-hmm. assets, basically. Yes. And I think this is another place that's so sticky. Mm. I see it over and over. I work with the most high potential young women. And then it's like as soon as those hormones start flying, um, a lot of their rationality goes out the window in their desire for connection or their repulsion at having conflict um, is so high that it becomes extraordinarily difficult to have these conversations, Mm -hmm. which is... If one person stays home, that puts enormous financial burden on the other person. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that nobody I've ever worked with has really ever had a conversation. Mm-hmm. And the ones that I've had, which are, well, why don't you just sign a document? If this is really a shared partnership and you've agreed, then 50% of the income of the working parent, mm-hmm. the working spouse, the working parent, should go into the other person's bank account. Does it ever happen? Never. Because it's not real. Yeah. In reality, the person that works has the power. Mm-hmm. And it may take a couple of years for that to unfold, but it will unfold. The person who has the money calls yeah. the shots. And for that other person who is the homemaker, like what can they do to, to even out that balance? It would be, I guess, having a conversation. Really, ideally, it's in advance mm-hmm. and it's a contract. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to listen really carefully because a lot of the working spouses are resentful. Mm-hmm. When they come in here, They're angry about it. They don't think it's fair. Mm -hmm. Managing money and working full-time to support a family, even if you're raised to do it and told socially that it's an expectation, is still a burden that we place on somebody. And these are social expectations that are wired into us. Every time women have a baby, oh, it's so nice, and get married, oh, it's so nice. I mean, you get. when I got married last summer, I got more positive reinforcement about that than I did running a successful financial wow. advisory firm over yeah. 10 years. And I didn't think getting married was that hard. Yeah. I thought running this firm was hard. Oh, yeah. And this is, and I just look and everyone wants to hear about my dress. Like, really? I know. First of all, do they not know what marriage is? It's not a bloody dress. Yeah. 
it's it's a whole bunch of commitments and it's a whole bunch of duties responsibilities it's a complex psychological and social arrangement mm-hmm. and everyone wants to talk about my dress mm-hmm. i don't know it's we're we're weird yeah it is it's a weird world it definitely is so my uh, last question to you would be and I, I guess i'm asking this from a personal perspective as i mean most of this podcast is you know, I want to learn about something because it's affecting me personally. Would you advise couples who go into a relationship to keep their finances separate, i.e. separate bank accounts, joint, or does it even matter? Oh, it matters a lot, actually. And I I think most of the couples that I know that are doing, um, are doing okay in this area, they have individual accounts mm-hmm. and then one joint. And then it's an agreement about what the joint looks like and what it covers and what each of us put in. So I just helped a couple negotiate last week where one made five times more than the other. So in the joint account, um, one of them put in like the hundred dollars and the other person would put in 20 and that would go into the joint. And then Mm -hmm. any, any, um, expenditure over $300 was decided jointly okay. if the money was going to come out of the joint account. Mm-hmm. And then the individual accounts provided individual transportation, all things to do with family obligations and gifts, mm-hmm. um, and uh, personal grooming. Awesome. So that was a place where you could um, you go nuts. Like if, you've, mm-hmm. if you're making a lot of money, uh, go have your massage. If you're not, you know, maybe you're going to kung pao happy feet yeah uh, for 15 bucks on their on their fast fridays or yeah. something you know? get a group on or something. <laughs> right okay. exactly yeah. yeah so i but i again i think it's a conversation and not an assumption but it makes sense to me to have a joint account mm-hmm. and pretty fast okay um as soon as you're living together i think that's important and then what comes in and out of that account and how it is it's a very structured conversation then and it seems to be one because it's so practical that people have without a lot of emotional Mm -hmm. um problems awesome okay well thank you tracy before we do wrap up i want you to tell us a little bit about the upcoming event that sophia financial are running on january 19th so uh it's actually january 26 26 26 is sophia wealth academy it's our 10th it's going to be held at the ubc alumni center and this is an opportunity. It is geared predominantly to women, although it's open to everybody. Mm-hmm. And it's looking at everything from the financial fundamentals of financial planning and how to manage a, um, how to how to manage getting out of debt, um, how to manage a portfolio. We have Susan Aglucar, who's going to create sort of a village. Um, we're going to be talking about leadership and power. Dr. Jessica Tracy, Dr. Maria Gallo, three-time Rugby Hall of Famer. And we're looking at the implications of financial literacy and its ability to fuel us to take on the leadership and power mm-hmm. in the world to do the things that we value and the things that we want to do. Um, so I'm extremely excited. And for you, and you can bring your partner, mm-hmm. one of them is uh, <laughs> Dr. Marshall and Donna Souls are going to be doing communicating about the hard stuff. Ah. So they've been married 51 years, yeah. and they're both communication experts. And so they're doing one of the 17 speakers is them Amazing. doing a workshop on how to talk about money. I've learned a lot from them. Yeah, no, yes. that's awesome. It's, I'm definitely coming. Great. I'm really excited about it. Great. Um, for those of you who happen to listen to this podcast after the event, it is a yearly event so no i'm not doing it again okay this is it (laughs) sorry people (laughs) sophiawealthacademy.ca uh before january 26th Mm -hmm. 
it's a it's a huge undertaking. We'll yeah. see what kind of magic is created hmm. from that day. So but it's not an possible. annual event. Yes. But you guys, you you have other events throughout the year. We do, that and here. that's at Sophia Financial. We offer anywhere from fifteen to twenty workshops a year for yeah. free here as a community service on all kinds of aspects of personal mm-hmm. empowerment and financial literacy. And for those of you not in Vancouver, Tracy is the author of the Financially Empowered Women. So yes. you can also purchase that from your tracythemes.ca yes. you, from, from tracythemes.com. Okay. And I'm going to get Amazon. Um, but always you always too. you can get it at Indigo. But I'll oh, get it cleaned awesome. up at Amazon okay. as well. Well, I'll find some links and I'll add that okay. to the show notes Great. along with your social media site. So people Great. can follow you. I know you're on Facebook and Instagram. Yes. So we'll get that up. So Tracy, it's been a pleasure as always. I love talking to you and uh, yeah, feelings mutual. Thank Thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I really hope that you learned something or had an aha moment or even decided to schedule a conversation around money with your loved one. You can follow Tracy at tracythemes.com and find out more about the events at Sophia Financial by visiting sophiafinancial.ca. If you enjoyed our conversation, then feel free to let us know in the comments section over on our website, uncomfortable.blog, or on any of our social media channels. We're on Facebook and Instagram at uncomfortable.blog and we're on Twitter at uncomfy underscore podcast. You can support our podcast by signing up to be a patron and pledging a small $5 per month so that we can keep running. For more information, visit uncomfortable.blog forward slash donate. Once again, guys, thanks so much for listening to this uncomfortable conversation. Now go forth and get uncomfortable.